I'm going to share um, kind of what's behind why we do what we do at LifePoint. And so there's always been kind of some bits and pieces of that as I've shared along the way, but you're going to get the detail. You're the, you're the very first ones. You're going to hear all of this at once. And I can tell you're deeply excited about that opportunity. So let me start by this, and I want to tell a story, and, and our introduction will be um, a bit lengthy just in regard to setting things up before we get into the actual um, text that we're going to look at today. So in February of 2008, we were, our family, all seven of us, were still living in Dusseldorf, Germany. It became clear to us at that time that we would be leaving our church planter role um, in Germany and would, we would be returning to the U.S. to do something. At that time, we didn't know exactly what we would be doing, um, exactly where we would land, what kind of role God would have for me next, but it was pretty clear that we would be leaving um, our role as uh, church planters there in Germany. And since we'd been living in Europe, very postmodern, much like the northeast and northern part uh, of the country, I thought, well, why don't we look and see if there's an opportunity that I could, uh, we could land somewhere up there. So from Germany, I began to research cities in Connecticut. There were 100,000 or more, or about 75,000, some of those as well. And I began to do some demographic research. I got on the phone. I called the New England Baptist Association uh, church planter person and also somebody who's just over that, just seeking, are there churches available? I had seen some on there and, and just trying to get some opportunities about that. Um, I'd found some where there's an opportunity to go and, and pastor there. And so I got on the phone with this guy and talked with him. And, and, uh, and it was a really good conversation. Um, I was telling him things that I discovered about some of the cities in Connecticut. And he was like, wow, I didn't know that. And, and uh, so I thought, so, you know, I hung up and emailed a few more times. And I thought, you know, maybe that's where we're going to go. And, and uh and then he just wasn't interested anymore um, to, to answer any more emails, to have any more phone calls. And so at the age of 42, I moved back to the United States of America with five kids, and I was a success. I moved in with my mother-in-law. I mean, I became the epitome of you have made it at age 42. You don't have a home. You do not have a job. At the, mo- at the moment, I didn't have a future. And I'm living with my mother-in-law in Amarillo, and I'm sending out resumes, and I'm trying to find a place to see who might be interested. So after that initial, initial conversation with him, and knowing that we were going to come back, um, I went to a, a, just a store in Dusseldorf, and I bought a journal, and I began to read Acts, and I began to read the letters um, that Paul wrote, most of the letters that Paul wrote. And I began to just began to think about if I was going to pastor again, which I had done before we had gone to Germany. Um, I wanted to do some things different. And so I began to think through those things. And this notebook is just filled with a lot of those hours upon hours that I went to a coffee shop to begin to think about and dream about um, what I would do if God allowed me to pastor again. And so out of that came a direction, a, a clear picture of reading of Scripture, of what I felt God wanted me to be a part of, and that uh, a people like you hopefully would want to be a part of that 
as well. So I've been back for 14.7 months. That's official. It's, uh, it's, hard that we've, it's hard to imagine that we've been back almost 15 years now, but we have. And everything that began to be developed there and what has been developed along the way um, has shaped who we are. So what I read then and what I read today still in the Bible concerning a local church is that the original churches, the original churches that were started in the first century, they were Christ-centered. Very clear they were Christ-centered, and they were that way very much because they were extremely Bible-centered. Because you can't have one without the other. If you're going to be a Christ-centered church, it can only be because the Scripture drives the congregation. The theme of the Bible is this revelation of the Father, Son, and the Spirit... But Jesus takes a prominent role in the revelation of the Old Testament, kind of getting us ready for the Messiah's coming. And then the New Testament speaks so much um, about him. So as John writes at the end of the first century, this book that we know as of Revelation, he's on the Isle of Patmos and he gets a revelation. Jesus shares with John about seven churches that are there kind of illustrating what the church was like then and what the church has been like um, for the last 2,000 years. You get an idea of reading the New Testament of what God wanted for the church to be and how it was um, to be led. And so five of those seven already had issues um, 40 years into the life of those churches. Um, two, only two of them are, were strong and didn't have any doctrinal issues or any other kind of thing. And so we see early on that there is a way to maintain a focus about things that's biblical. Um, two of the seven were doing that. Five of the seven were really wrestling with some things that they had allowed um, to be a part of the church. And so when you... When I began to read, and, and when you have read as well, you can see that on the day that the Jerusalem church, the very first New Testament church was birthed, it was very large. Um, a few thousand people on that very first day uh, come to faith after Peter preaches. But then you begin to see, as you begin to read the scripture, they begin to, and particularly looking at Acts 2, 42 through 47, you begin to see that not only was there a large church originally, they began to break this down and they began to meet in homes. And it says that day by day they met in the temple and they met in homes. And so there was, though this first church was large, um, they began to meet by, with Bible study and other things together in the neighborhoods, small groups. When you look at church history for the last 2,000 years, most churches are not like the Jerusalem church and aren't like many churches in our country today that are called mega churches. Most churches are like us. There are a few hundred people. And this has been the majority of churches throughout the history of the church. And so it's okay for a church to be big. It's okay for it to be medium. It's okay for it uh, to be smaller. What it must be, though, is it must be biblical. That's the thing. And so you can have large churches that are extremely biblical. Um, and you can also have large churches that have gone off the rails and just allowing man's thoughts and everything to guide stuff. That can also happen in a small church where it desires to be big and it begins to allow certain things in to attract where the scripture isn't what drives the church. So the issue is never size. And so again, typically 
throughout the history of the church, a church like LifePoint is pretty typical in regard to at least size-wise. But, but that's, again, that's not the issue. The issue for us is, is, is a church going to be biblical? Are we, as a church, going to be biblical? So there's been much in our day and time as far as like how do you evaluate a church? How do you, how do you look at the criteria of that? And, uh, and I think it just all comes back to what I just have been talking about in these moments is making sure that a church teaching philosophy, its ministry philosophy is connected to the scripture. And so what I began to write in this notebook and what has become a philosophy and that kind of guides what we do as a church um, is that I would rather us be a deep church, that there would be depth that is part of our lives of us knowing who the Lord is more than anything. And so in time, so this, what I'll share in a little bit, this teaching, preaching philosophy, because I believe that the direction of the church starts in what we proclaim and what we hold to on Sunday mornings and what we want to communicate and how we, and how we start the week and how, we, how the church kind of flows out of this time together uh, when we gather. We'll see that in a moment. But another thing that's come out of this along the way is something that we call the W-4. And so um, probably about three months ago, um, there's a company in Minnesota that has contacted me, and I began to have a com- conversation with them um, about kind of what we do here. And out of that conversation, they were like, would you be open to writing about your teaching philosophy Um, the W-4, so that we can maybe potentially print that and get that into the hands of some other people. And so I've been, um, I've had all of this in like this, but not in kind of an ordered form. It's been here, it's been here, but I've been working on getting it out. And so I wanted to share that with you uh, today. The W-4 was birthed in 2012 and 2000, late 2012 and early 2013. We have been practicing the W-4 Bible study method since 2015. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but back in 2015 in May, on a Wednesday night and a Thursday night, we asked everybody to give us one of those nights to come up here. We set up tables, and we initially taught the W-4 Bible study method um, with everybody in the church. And so we have been doing that uh, since 2015. Since then... You may not realize this. We have gone through 40 of the 66 books of the entire Bible. In depth, because the the W-4 method is designed for us to slowly go through that and to go through it with depth to see things. I got to thinking about this this week, and I realized in a few years we'll have all 66 books knocked out, and we'll start over again. We may repeat some of those along the way as well, But I just want to challenge you this morning as I share from my heart today about who we are as a church and what guides us. If you are not participating in in doing the W-4 with us, I want to ask you to do it with us. Even if your life group is doing something different other than the W-4, would you do the W-4 during the week? So that you will be, because the W-4 is designed not just as a Bible study method. It's another tool for us to have unity together. 
Because what happens is this, and this has happened to me. If we're all studying the same scripture, which this week will be uh, still in Nehemiah, you may see me on a Tuesday at Walmart. And I know because you may ask me at Walmart on Tuesday, what am I learning in Nehemiah chapter 6? I need to be ready because there's some built-in accountability that I may get asked about that. I may see somebody on a Thursday and say, hey, what are you seeing this week in the W4 as we were reading Nehemiah together? And so I want to just invite you, encourage you. I want to challenge you. I can't make you. I know that. Okay. I know I can't make you. But I want to encourage you to get with us as we read the scripture um, together. So I crave and desire deep discipleship. And I want to talk um, about that with all of us today. So the next thing I want to say this morning before we begin to do that is I want to enter you for the job of pastor at LifePoint Fellowship. Can I do that this morning? I know it may sound weird to you, but if, but if this is back 15 years ago and you had an opportunity to ask me, so what do you think about the scripture? What do you think a church ought to be about? What do you, what do you, what do you think ought to drive a church? I want, to, I want to interview with you today. Um, I'm not resigning at the end of the day. You're going to have to like this, whether it is or not, I guess. I guess. Um, but, but I think it's important for you to know what drives me during the week, since I'm kind of the main point person in, in regard to teaching on Sunday morning. Why do we do what we do? What undergirds our week or weekly gathering? What drives us in regard to that? So let me say this, teaching the Bible is more than just the act of teaching. If we don't realize this, then the role of a teacher and a preacher and a communicator of the gospel doesn't go further. It's more than just communication. There's so much more that is connected to this. And there are principles that guided Paul, that guided the apostle John, that guided the early apostles as they started churches and pastored those that should be the driving thing for every church today, regardless of culture. And I want you to hear that. So we're going to Asia tomorrow and we'll be training pastors in Asia. Culture, though it is different than the American culture, the Bible is the same. So what the Bible communicates, what a church ought to be doing, what it ought to be embracing is exactly the same. Culture doesn't dictate to a church what a church ought to be about. The Bible dictates what a church ought to be about. Now, there are nuances, obviously, with culture. Culture is not evil in and of itself. And so there are more effect, like what, what, what you do in Asia doesn't work. Some, some of those things doesn't work well here and What we do here doesn't work well there. But the underlying thing in regard to teaching of the scripture must be the driving force for us. So as a pastor of LifePoint, and I've been here again, um, this August will be 15 years. One of the things I've discovered in these 15 years is there are three current strong challenges that a local church is facing. One is, it's what we just went through with the book of Jude, where Jude was dealing with false teaching. So churches in the West today are dealing with that, that there are leadership that has false teaching. Um, We spent a lot of time with that, and so I'm not going to spend any time there when we were with Jude. The second thing that has been dominant, particularly in the last three years, 
since COVID hit is there has been a massive, and I will stress this, there has been a massive falling away in America from the church. Many people who were active and faithfully coming and serving in 2019, that when March of 2020 came and things shut down and countries shut down and the world shut down, many, many, many people never returned to church. There has been just this massive falling away in regard to this. And my other pastor friends that I've talked to, they affirm this as well. Where we were going in Asia, they have seen this there as well. So one false teaching, the church has been having to deal with that. Secondly, there's been a massive falling away from the church that has affected the church. And the third big reason, and it's in some ways for a church like us, because um, I look out in this room and I know we've got a, a number of people out today. This church is unique. We, have some, we, have, we are full of deeply committed Bible-loving people. We are a, a unique place. And, and, and there are people here that are filled. Um, this church is filled with those kind of people um, like that. And so I, I think the danger of false teaching for us um, would never say that we would not fall into that. But we have enough people here that I think are going to attempt to keep us in the right direction. Now, the danger would come in this, and it's the third one. And we're seeing it all around, and that is that a church begins to accommodate to the culture. That the culture dictates to the church what is happening and taking place. And the only thing that can keep us from accommodating and changing and conforming to the culture is that we would maintain our commitment to biblical truth. Let me share four things just briefly that I'm seeing today in the church and that we must be aware of. When a church begins to accommodate itself to culture, that flows out of an abandonment from Scripture. If Scripture isn't driving a church, then the church will begin to accommodate and look like the culture because there's nothing really guiding it anymore. The second issue is this, is that when a church begins to accommodate um, to the culture, it shifts from being unique in the culture to just looking like the culture, and it's just blended, and it doesn't really seem different in some of the ideas and things that are there. A third thing is this, is that when accommodation to culture begins to, begins to dominate a local church, it disconnects the local church from historic Christianity. Historic Christianity is deeply important for us, and we'll talk about that in a moment, because when the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, it was birthed in the hearts of those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. They started churches. They taught churches. They were led by the Spirit to write letters that have come to us. And they have handed down the gospel to us. And so we need to be connected to what was originally established that has been faithfully passed down all the way to 2023. And when a church begins to move away from scriptural teaching and to accommodate to culture, it shifts itself away from historic Christianity. And lastly, I'm seeing this, that the fruit of that ultimately... If, you're not, if the Bible's not central, 
Jesus is the center of the communication of the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah, the revelation of Christ in the New Testament, whom the Father sent, whom the Spirit now is at work in the life of the church. But it's really important to see this. When you, when the, the ultimate fruit of abandonment of Scripture is narcissism itself. And there are so much in our world today where the church is about making sure that everybody feels good about everything instead of dealing with the heart issues that are present and that are there. So there's great pressure today. Hang with me. Y'all with me? Hang with me. There's great pressure today before we begin to look at the philosophy of what God's life point for the church now to begin to accept sin or to lessen our view of sin. And that cannot be done by us. Our culture has moved the line so many times. And so I want to illustrate what this looks like. Culture is constantly pushing the line. So I've got something I want to represent a line. As God's people, we have a line. And you better answer this. I'm about to ask you a question. I've got a stick that can reach people. You better answer this question right. Where is our line? Where's our line? Jesus, the scripture. The culture is going to do this. Culture is going to set a line like this. And it's going to begin to do things like this. And then 20 to 30 years down the road, it's going to say, well, that's not really our line. This is the line now. And as the culture shifts the line, it's going to ask the church to come to this. And then another generation comes. And the culture is going to push the line here. And the culture will move here, and the culture will ask the church to come with the culture to this new line. And I'm here to say to you this morning, we don't adjust the line. We're not guided by culture. And we look around today, and all in our country today, we see, even in the last three years, we can see in the last 20 years and 25 years, if you've been around, There has been a movement of the cultural line of what is acceptable. Here's the problem if a church does this or a denomination does this. It is really hard to get that line back to where it originally was. You can look at the Episcopals. You can look at the Lutheran Church. You can look at some other churches, and they have gone crazy liberal because as the culture has moved the line, they have adjusted to the line of the culture. And that's why you have homosexual priests homosexual pastors, transgender pastors. You have churches that call themselves Christian but don't teach the Bible. They teach man-centered gospel, man-centered self-help, therapeutic help instead of the gospel. So a, a church can't do that. 20 years from now, I hope I'm in heaven I guess I'm okay if I'm 77. I'll be okay with that. But I'd love to be with Jesus. But 20 years from now, let me tell you what culture is going to do. Where's the line going to be? It will be further. It will be out the door. And so if our families are going to maintain their sanity, if our historic mainline denominations are going to not drift more than what some of them have, and if our churches aren't, and if the pastors aren't, then we have one line, and it's the Bible. There's not another line. And so we stand there, 
And we stay on the right side of the line to walk with God and to follow him. Before we begin into the philosophy and look at some scripture this morning, there are four types of responses that a church has to God's word. And you'll see this in any church anywhere. You'll see these four type of responses. First response is this, where the leadership and the congregation both say, we're not interested in God's word. And that's where some denominations that have literally fallen apart and are dying out, um, they are. The leadership, the seminaries, and the congregation have said, yeah, we're not really interested in what the Bible has to say. Um, Let's just do whatever it is that they do. Here's a second thing. Where the leadership says no to the word, and the congregation says yes to the word. And when you have that, you know what you have inside a church? You have deep conflict. Where the congregation is saying, leaders, teach me God's truth. Because that's what I need for my, my mind, my family needs it, my kids need it. And so when a congregation is longing for the truth, but, but the leadership is saying, eh, we're not really into the truth, then you have deep conflict. And so one, you have liberal denominations with the first one. Second one, you have deep conflict. Then you have a third type of church where the leadership says, says yes to the scripture, but the congregation says no to the scripture. And when you have that, it's not really infighting. It's just you have a lot of apathy and you have a congregation where it may have great teaching, great preaching, great exaltation of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But if the congregation is not longing for that, you have a congregation that has no maturity in it whatsoever. It's just deeply, deeply shallow. shallow. Here's the fourth one, which started me writing in this book back in 2008. It's when the leadership of the congregation both say yes to the word then you have what's called deep church. You have a church that is maturing. And I want deep church. How about you? So I want to walk through this, if you would. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures. Um, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 first. So if you want to have an idea of how I think as I lead the church here and, and particularly in regard to the preaching ministry of the church. This is the first principle that came out of that time. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read verses 2 through 5. The first principle is just this. We've got to be, and I'm sorry, these are all, re- these are all R's. They start with R's, so... Just bear with it. This is, this, this is the way it's going to be. Churches and pastors must be ready in season and out of season. So look with me in the text. 2 Timothy 4. And we'll read, let's just read 1, 1 through 5. We'll put that together. So Paul writes, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, in light of of that, in light of verse 1, that that you're going to have to, as a pastor, 
give an account for your life. He says this, Timothy, this is what you must do. Verse 2, you preach the word. You be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Paul says, always, Timothy, be sober-minded. You're going to have to endure suffering, and you do the work of an evangelist, and you fulfill your ministry. Just a couple of thoughts here. This guides me. I've been here 15 years now. I've been here long enough. I've, we, 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 Pam and I, um, have been married almost four decades now. We've never lived anywhere in our marriage longer than here. And because of where I am at my age, the reality is I can see and recognize this is, this is where I'm going to be. We talked about way back when, 15 years ago, those of you who are with us then, and some of you have gotten with us along the way here, that we would grow old together. We would see our kids grow up. It's, it's that way. Little Finley Grissom is not little Finley Grissom anymore. I went to the hospital and held her. She's going to be a freshman next year. And so churches have these cycles of things that you go through. And so I've been here long enough to know that there's been times in the history of our church when we've been on fire for the word and there's been times where it's waned or there's been this that has been stronger and then this that has been weaker. Welcome to life. Churches are full of people who have this ebb and flow flow about things. But as far as philosophy goes, this cannot ever be compromised. So Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, There'll be a time, there'll be a season when everybody's like, give me the hard passages, say what needs to be said, Pastor. I want to hear it. And then there'll be a time where people are like, oh, can you calm down a little bit? Will you not sound like Jonah and Malachi and some of these prophets that are just seem to harp over and over on these issues over and over and over again? And so Paul tells Timothy, you stay at it. Regardless of what the government might say, the mood in a church, the mood in a denomination, the mood of this, you stay out being ready. When it's popular and when it's not popular, you stay ready. Because he tells him here, and we're kind of getting here today in a stronger way, that there's a time coming. He tells Timothy, which again would have become true in Timothy's day. How do five of the seven churches established by the Apostle Paul have false teaching in them 40 years later? You know how that happened? Because somewhere along the line, those churches moved the line. And the church culture did. And the church just adjusted to that. And so, so we must be the kind to know this. That even in our day, and we've seen it in our lifetime, and the older people in in the room this morning, we love you. We deeply love you and treasure you. You have seen a greater shift in the church than some of us have seen. And how the church has lost influence upon the culture. And here's the reality, is that I think every generation has it, but the closer we move to the last days, we will see it. And Paul just tells him there, there there will come a time when 
when people will not endure sound teaching. By the way, that's not the culture not embracing sound teaching. That is inside the church not embracing sound teaching. And so Paul tells him there will be a time, this word here where it says uh, in the ESV, it says will not endure sound teaching. It literally means this, they won't tolerate it anymore. That you will have a congregation of people will say, man, that pastor that we got, that youth minister that we got, he just wants to talk about the Bible all the time. There will come a day where there will be fewer and fewer people tolerating biblical teaching. And Paul says what those people will do is this. They accumulate teachers, Paul says, to suit their own passions, to tickle their ears. And that word here literally means this. It means to gather up teaching in heaps, just teachers. Pile it up in a pile so that the messages that come out from the pile have nothing to do with God and have everything to do with man. And people will turn away. So we've got to be ready in season and out of season. And so that's the way I am. I'm going to stay at the task. The elders are going to make sure that we all stay at the task in everything that we do of preaching the scripture, no matter the season. So we'll be book after book, chapter after chapter, verse after verse. We will continue to do that. Secondly, this guides me. On your chair there, if you would, grab that, grab that piece of paper. I forgot to grab one for myself. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but I want to make the emphasis. If you go to the side that says the biblical practice of reading. This is not all of them. This permeates the scripture, but I just wanted to show you a highlight of this. So when I began to get ready for a message every Sunday... I read the text and 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 I read the text. I I do not stop reading the text. So I I will use the W4 in a text to kind of outline things, to kind of see the things that are there, to kind of help me think about cross-reference and things of that um, for the days ahead. But I can just share with you and you can just read this. Let me just share a few with Exodus 24, the very first one there. says, then the book of the covenant, then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. That's on the page there as well. This is what he said. He said, and when this letter has been read among you, you have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I can come back to see you, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So this is important. Hear this, church. For a church to maintain its direction and to to be biblical, one, it must be ready in season and out of season. 
the people of the congregation and the pastor must read the text of Scripture. And I do this. I commit this, that I read and I read and I read and I read. And we must devote ourselves to the reading of Scripture. A few years ago, James handed me something from John MacArthur. It was just a little cut-out page, and I uh, taped it right beside me. So I, my desk is like this, and so right beside me, when I turn and I look out to see the birds out here and to look down toward the lake, I see this piece of paper, and it's from John MacArthur. And he talks about in this short paragraph, he says, when he is preparing for a message, he says, I never stop asking questions of the Bible. I ask question after question, and I ask this, what does this have to do with this? And, and so we do that. The W-4 is designed to do that, by the way. You can get the W-4 card out in the foyer out there. It is designed when you read a passage to ask the right questions. The Bible, hear this, is a speaking, talking book from God, revealing himself. And so therefore, we want to ask the right kind of questions to gain the right kind of answers. And so... So I, I just want to remind us this morning that I, and, and just communicate to you, that I am committed to reading the text over and over, and you need to be. Joe Farr now, when, I, when it's not clear what I'm preaching on Sunday morning since we finished Jude, text me every Saturday night, what's the text tomorrow? I want to read it. So I had so many that I texted him last night, he just went, well... <clears throat> Listen to this. You should have already read whatever we're going to do before we come in on Sunday morning. You should do that. Do that on Sunday morning. Do that earlier during the week. But you, should just, you shouldn't pop in here on a Sunday morning and have no idea where we're going. We're going somewhere with the Scripture. We have shown that over 15 years. We walk through books of the Bible verse by verse. You need to read the text of whoever's up here preaching. Students, on Wednesday night, we probably ought to do a better job of this. Maybe your small group leaders can do this to tell you what we're going to be studying on Wednesday so that when you show up here, you're not, oh, wow. No, but you're like, oh, yeah, I know that already. What would it be like if in our congregation alone, we all showed up every Sunday like, yeah, I'm ready. I know, I, I read that. I'm ready. I've done some thinking on my own. Hey, are you going to talk about that? And you can ask me those questions. But, but a deep church is one that reads the text. Not just the pastor, but the congregation read the text. Thirdly, I want you to go to Ezra, way back in the Old Testament, chapter 7. Third thing that guides me is I research the original meaning in the text, that's important. These books, these verses, these letters were written to real people in a real time. So we need to know what it meant when they were originally written. That helps us to understand it today. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. And if you don't stop turning your pages, I'm going to get mad at you because we just finished reading Ezra. You should know where that is. I'm not going to get mad. Y'all calm down a little bit, okay? All right. You should know where Ezra is. All right, Ezra 7, verse 10. This has had huge impact 
on my life and guiding my philosophy. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra, we learn in verse 6 of chapter 7, was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. How did he become an expert in the law of Moses? You read it, you read it, you read it, you read it, you study it, you memorize it, you read it, you talk about it, you get with others, you talk about it with them. He was skilled in the law of Moses. He gained his knowledge of the word of God by reading. As a matter of fact, if you will talk to ancient rabbis, well, you can't. But if you were to be able to talk to ancient rabbis, they considered him, and even many today, considered him second only to Moses. He was skilled in the scriptures, which is referred in his day to well knowing the, the Pentateuch and and many other things Ezra would have been an expert on, but he would, have, he would have known those first five books of the Old Testament. Three things about him that I want to point out that I desire for myself and I desire for you. One is simply this. If, if we're going to research the original meaning and know what God's word originally said so that it makes application in our day and time, we must study God's word as it was originally written. So I'm going to give you, if you're taking notes, I want to give you a resource. It's my resource. We should do, and this is one of the things that I always do, I do the Hebrew and the Greek work. And if you want to go deeper and understand things, you need to see what the original meaning was because there's layers there that are deep. Let me give you a resource. Preceptaustin.org. Precept, P R E. C-E-P-T, just like Austin, Texas, A-U-S-T-I-N dot org. I have been using that since the early 2000s to do my Greek work and Hebrew work and to look at other things. And and so there it is for you. If you want to look at that, they've got all kinds of things on there for you to to find out what was the original meaning, what was the context, what was this. So I wanted to give that to you today. So Ezra studied God's word. Secondly, you got to live it. If you're going to be a great teacher, not only do you study God's word, but you got a desire to do God's word. And that's what it says in, in verse 10 there. Researching the meaning is more than academic, but it means to live it out. He set his heart to do the law that he had studied. And I believe only true theology is applied theology. It's important. Thirdly, about Ezra. When you research original meaning, you're studying God's word. Once you get the information, you want to live God's word. And and thirdly, you want to teach God's word. Study, do it, teach. Ezra, it said, wanted to reach his entire nation with the word of God. That's the end. He wanted to teach the statutes and the rules in Israel. He had a responsibility to get it to the wider community. This was his calling. This was his privilege to spend long periods of time studying God's 
word, but it wasn't just for his benefit alone. He wanted it to get to other people. This is an important point. If you desire to be a teacher of the Bible, it's to teach women or to teach students or to teach children or to teach a life group, other adults. Ezra did not begin as a teacher. Listen to this. He became one. This is really important. Many people are like, I want to be a teacher. They're given a teaching position, but if they've not studied and lived the word and begin to gain, that's where you get wisdom. By knowing the word and living it out, you get wisdom to be able to give insight to others. And so there are people who want teaching roles and preaching roles, but I believe that you, you become a studier and that prepares you to be a good teacher. So this was the case with him, and I believe effective teachers allow the Word of God to enter into the mind, to go to the heart, and then to come out of the mouth. Last, last thing with this, before we move to point four, is we need to be a Berean. Let me tell you about the Bereans. They were um, in Thessalonica. This is what Acts 17.10 says. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. This is an, an area um, near Thessalonica. They had come from there, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogues. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word or the teaching from Paul with all eagerness, and this is what they did. They would listen to what Paul said, and then it says this, and then they would go to the Scriptures to examine if what Paul said was actually true. So they examined the Scriptures. Research the meaning. Fourthly, if you would, take that piece of paper in your lap and turn it over to the other side. We are to hold, according to the New Testament, to the traditions and the doctrine that was established by the apostles. So this is the fourth principle that guides me. There needs to be and there must be Rigid adherence to the traditions of the faith and doctrine of the faith. So let me just share a couple of verses. One, holding on to what's been passed down. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Again, this is on your page. You can see it later or you see it now there. He says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Writing to the church in Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Paul says, now we commend, command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Now go down to embrace and hold the right doctrine. Romans sixteen seven. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. In other words, that has been delivered to you. Titus chapter 1 verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now hear this, church. How y'all doing? Y'all doing Okay. Okay, listen. Many people today say, I hate the traditions of the church. And I know sometimes some of them seem boring, maybe. 
but we are to have them. Traditions connected to Scripture that we see in Scripture, we must do those things. There's two ordinances that we are to do. Lord's Supper and Baptism, we are commanded to do that. You don't have a church if you're not practicing those two things. Where the leaders are baptizing people that have come to faith and leading the church through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. But there are other things that the church ought to do. You'll know that passage in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that talks about Jesus, have this mind in yourself, the way Jesus is, that though um, he had equality with God, he didn't consider himself that way, and he talks about he's got the name of... It's believed that that was an early saying that the church has said one another out loud. There's another one in Corinthians about that. So they were starting traditions early on. Now, they don't have to all be the same. We have a tradition here. We do it every Sunday. What is it? Psalm 119. We take a section of that where we quote that. And it's a tradition. It's something that we consistently do. We have small groups in homes that we practice. We have Good Friday to remember. There are traditions and doctrines and things that we are to continue to practice. And we are to have rigid adherence to those things. Here's the fifth one. This guides me when I preach every week. We must rely on the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to remind you of these and we're going to go to the sixth one. If you'll turn to the sixth one, it's in 2 Peter. And let me remind you about the importance of relying on the Holy Spirit. Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, speaking with the apostles who would start the first churches, said, you're going to have a helper. He's going to come. And he's going to teach you all things. He's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've said to you. He's going to guide you into all truth. He's not going to speak on his own authority. But he's going to tell you things that he hears. And when he hears these things, he's going to speak these things to you. It is absolutely important that every Sunday morning we are relying on the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? you in agreement with me? We must rely on the Holy Spirit. So my power is not enough. Nobody else's power in the room is enough. We want to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit whose unique role is to shine the light on the glory of Jesus and to be the main teacher. And the only way for the Spirit to be the main teacher on a Sunday morning is for the teacher to do the work and the research and to understand things and to read the text and to rely on the Holy Spirit when they teach. With that comes the next one. I sometimes say this. Nod your head if you've heard me say this. This is a broken record. I'm about to say this. And I've said that many times. That leads us to the sixth thing. You know what we need? We need reminding of things because things spill out of our brain. And so Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, Peter says this, that leaders 
should remind people of the truth so that they can recall the truth. And so Peter says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And so he says in verse 13, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up. Here's that word again, by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And then he closes it in verse 15. So I'm going to make every effort. I'm going to give every kind of energy so that after I'm gone and I'm no longer on the earth, I've invested in you. I've taught you. I've reminded you. I've reminded you. I've reminded you. I've reminded you so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So, so we have here at the church, I couldn't, I couldn't pull it off, the counting, but we have gone through Psalm 119 every Sunday for six straight years. Reminding ourselves every Sunday in that tradition of the truth of God's word and how important it is and being reminded of that. If you have children that have been a part of this church since kindergarten, and for sure if they have been a part of the church from sixth grade on until they graduate, we're about to finish, I think, our third cycle of this. But we have a curriculum that we do on Wednesday nights that goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's a three-year plan. So if your student starts in sixth grade at LifePoint, by the time they graduate six years later, as a senior of high school, they, have, they will have gone through the major themes of the Old and New Testament twice. If your kids have been a part of the LifePoint kids, that will simply increase. Now, again, that doesn't guarantee that your kid's going to turn out right. People choose things. But I want you to know this. This is our aim, starting when they are young. My wife teaches, what age group is that? Four years old? Two, twos and threes? Teaching lessons to two and three-year-olds from the gospel um, curriculum. And this must be the, the thing that we must continue to do and we will continue to do, to teach so that we recall. Our music philosophy here is, I can't think of anything good that came out of COVID other than sermon writing. It was fantastic. I was able to, when we were going through the Gospel of John, I was 20 weeks ahead at one point in time, 20 sermons written. I've never had that happen before, but let me tell you what that did for me. So right now I'm about 11 weeks ahead of where we are. I'm almost finished writing the next series that we're going to do in Revelation, the first part of Revelation. I send Mark Donahoe every week my sermon. He reads through it, thinks about songs. So if you think that we're just haphazardly putting things together when we gather here on Sunday morning, we're not doing that. There is tons of thought, tons of energy, tons of prayer that goes into this. You should pray for Mark every week as he's thinking through these things. Because sometimes it just takes a line and a song and in a moment. 
to change things, that the truth of that changes things because these songs are written connected to the truth of Scripture. So we, we, we want to remind us. I want to remind you. Here's the seventh one. We must remain always in the written text. Now I want you to go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're about to finish this up. I'll have you home by lunch at 2 o'clock. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. This one dominates my thinking when I'm writing and when I come here on, and stand here to teach. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Look at verse 17 again. That the man of God or the woman of God, the child of God, the student of God, wherever you are, that you would be complete, equipped for every good work, How in the world can we be ready for the works that God has for us? By embracing the breathing out of Scripture that God did that has come to us. God breathed this Scripture out. This word Scripture comes from a Greek word that means to write. It's where we get our English word for graphite, a graphite pencil, writing, So listen to what Paul says here. All scripture, every letter, every sentence, every word, every aspect of scripture, every passage, every word, in every text is God's written word for us. And it has been breathed out by him. This word means this. It means to breathe or to blow. It can only be the Greek translated Breathe out divinely by God's inspiration. Peter said it similarly in 2 Peter 1.21. You can look at that another time. But listen to this. Every solitary word of Scripture is to be seen as God-breathed. The Jewish rabbis, in referring to the Old Testament, emphasized in their teaching that the Spirit of God rested upon and in the prophets in such a way that the words did not come from the prophet, but God was uniquely using them. Now, the prophets weren't like mindless people. They were aware of what was being communicated, but they were understanding that God was doing something unique. I want to show you something on the screen. Aaron, will you put that up there? I don't know if you've seen this before, but I want you to highlight. I want to show this to you. So all the way to the far left over here is Genesis, and all the way to the far right is Revelation. The white things that go down on the bottom represent Scripture, the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. All of the colored lines that are there represent the cross-references of the Bible. Now, this is an amazing thing. There are, from Genesis 1, 1, to the end of Revelation, 
and the further length of the lines that are there or how many times the reference to those things are found in other places. There are almost 65,000 cross-references in the Bible. That is a visual picture of what that looks like. Now look at that. Look at the lines that you go through and the depth and the avenues and the pathways that you can go to. No other book in history has been more attacked, been more destroyed, been more burned, been more mocked than the Scripture. But you cannot find another piece of literature that could even look like that. And that's why the Bible is God-breathed It has a unified message and why the church cannot ever stray from that. So we, listen, remain in the text. We remain in the text. We remain in the text. We're not going to teach a Billy Graham book on Sunday morning. Read a Billy Graham book at your home with other people. Totally good to do that. That is not what the church is called to do on Sunday mornings. We are to proclaim the truth and be in the text. Why? Because it is divinely inspired. Because it has been breathed out by God himself. Go one chapter before chapter 3. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. We must rightly handle the truth. This guides my thoughts as well. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the truth. This word, do your best, can also be translated, be diligent. It means study with energy to do one's very best. Don't spare any effort. Work hard at preaching and teaching. Don't delay Do it effectively. So I'm going to step on toes. Y'all ready? If you're a teacher at this church, do not ever show up on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning and that's the first time you've looked at what you're about to teach. It would be better on Saturday night to say, I've had no time this week to get somebody else who's at least going to read it on Saturday night and stay up for hours to be ready. If God's word is what God's word says, then we need to be prepared. You agree with me? It is, this is, listen, this is the greatest treasure that we can have here. God breathed out and gave us words so that we can know who he is, how to worship him, and how to walk with him. And the calling is to rightly handle the truth to be someone who presents themselves before the Lord as someone who's genuine in a very crooked time by rightly handling and teaching, not what the pastor wants to teach, not what the youth minister wants to teach, but what does God teach and what's been taught already. That's where we remain, and that's why we remain in the written text, remain in the written text, and rightly handle The word of God. So let me tell you what happens before we get in here every Sunday. I research, read the text, 
Look at the Hebrew. Look at the Greek. I, write, I outline. I W for it. By the time a sermon is written, there's been 25 to 30 hours of research, writing, outlining that's put together and typing the thing out. On Thursday afternoons from 3 to 5 before I leave, I walk through what's gone and give two more hours. On Friday morning, I go play the greatest game in the history of the world called disc golf. I come back to my house. I sit at my bar and I walk through the sermon that we're going to do on Sunday morning from 11 a.m. usually to 1 p.m. every Friday. Saturday morning, I go play the greatest game in the history of the world, disc golf. I get back, and I sit at my bar, and for two more hours, I walk through the text. On Saturday night, I walk through the text two more hours, and I get up on Sunday mornings at 5 a.m. and walk through the text again two to two and a half more hours. So by the time you show up on Sunday morning, I want you to know that there's been anywhere from 35 to 40, well, not more than that. It's been about 38 to 40 hours that's been invested in what what happens and takes place here. And I'm thoroughly convinced that if a pastor is not giving deep, deep time like that, then I don't know what they're doing. We have this... We have this great call upon our lives to study and preach what God has called us to do. And there can't be anything that gets in the way of that. Two more things, and I'm just going to briefly touch on them. Acts 20, you can read it at home. Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders. But there is a requirement to teach the whole counsel of God. And Paul talks about it in that text. He tells the Ephesian elders, I didn't shrink back from telling you what needed to be said. I told you everything. I, I, told, I told you all of it. He said, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then he tells them, listen, you've got to pay attention to yourself. and You've got to work on yourself. And every every preacher, every pastor, every elder who teaches in a life group or whatever setting there is, there needs to be careful examination of yourself before you stand up. And so he tells them to do that. And he tells them to shepherd the flock and to guard the flock and to study to know right doctrine so that you can refute it. And so we are required to teach the whole counsel of God's word. We don't just, I don't get up here and we don't get up here, read a couple of verses to launch pad to some man-centered idea to kind of talk about things on a Sunday morning. We don't do that. One of the easiest jobs is to be an expository preacher. Let me tell you why. When I finish a verse of a book that we're walking through, I know next Sunday where I'm starting already before I'm even done. I know where I'm starting. And so our role is... Not to come up, and my role is not to come up with ideas about what to preach. I am to preach what God has breathed out. That's it. And so the format is really, really simple. It takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to get to where it needs to be, to communicate God's heart. But there's a requirement to teach the whole council. And I know from time to time you may be, I don't know this, but probably can imagine that you're like, oh, he's talking about that again. 
oh, does he, do you have to talk about cultural stuff again this week? Let me tell you, if I talk about cultural stuff on a Sunday morning, it's because the text demands it and calls for application. So sometimes, some Sundays I don't say anything, but on some Sundays the text does it. And so if it's six weeks in a row and you're like, ah, why does he keep saying that? Well, I need you to remember, so I've got to, I've got to broken record you over and over so that we can recall. But it also means this, that we teach the whole council. We don't shy away from things that are hard. Lastly, this is a a joy for me. And it's connected to kind of the last three that that were there. As I remember every week that the word of God is released, it's not in chains. And this is the verse that guides me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Paul is in prison in Rome, writing to Timothy. And he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now listen to what Paul says. He's chained, most likely at times, though we had some freedom. You can kind of see there's a little bit of freedom in the end of the book of Acts there. He said, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal... And then he says this, but the word of God is not bound. It's released. So one of my great freedoms on Sunday morning is to not have to worry about unchaining the truth of God's word because it's boundless. You can't lock up the truth, though our culture wants to say that you can just have whatever truth you want and do whatever Listen, so we, we just stand. We stand there. We stand knowing that God's word is unchained. It's boundless. It's released. And I love every Sunday that I get the opportunity to preach before this congregation of people. Can't wait to talk about this in Asia this week. God's word is not bound. It is released And so therefore, just proclaim it and release it. Here's the last thing I want to say this morning. The culture has really put a lot of pressure on us in regard to a a few areas to say, well, y'all, when y'all say that and y'all take that stand, you Christians sound unloving. And it's become so predominant lately that there's been a few times in my life, I've, I've done this over the past few months, and each time I do it, I go, why, why do we need to do that? And so I want to get us all on the same page this morning. Maybe the others that aren't here this morning, they'll watch this. I want to release you about something. And here's, here, here, here's what it is, and we'll finish. We don't need to preface justifications for our biblical stances. We are called to be loving to people. Are we in agreement about that? But we are not to affirm everything. Are we in agreement about that? Okay. So when we talk, 
we don't have, if we're going to say something about a cultural issue that the Bible's really clear on, and we know that the Bible's really clear on it, it's okay for us to just say, this is what the Bible says. We don't have to preface a statement before we make a truthful statement that the scripture is clear on. Because if we do that, we're kind of just saying this, that the Bible can't really defend itself and it needs us to speak some words of justification. Now listen, when I was writing in this book in 2008, this thought was there and I saw a video this week from Francis Chan that brought back to memory this. And I'm going to close with this. I really am. I really am closing with this. And I'm praying this for me, and I'm praying it for our elders here who teach. Praying for some of you as well who teach. When you look at the Old Testament prophets, did they make sure they were prefacing to the audience that was going to receive the words that God had given them to say so that everybody will feel good about what's about to be said? They had been given a burden by God, a breathed out message that they were to speak. And they were just to speak it. A couple of months ago, I was standing on the wall of ancient Nineveh, looking into the place where Jonah, it says, walked. You know, you know what Jonah said for 40 days? God's about to wipe out this city. That was what his message was. God's about to wipe out the city. And he said it over and over for 40 days. He didn't work the ground to kind of get everybody ready for it. You're about to get judgment. You look at the life of Jesus. Did he spend time with broken people? He sure did. He went to Matthew's house. They accused him of being a glutton. Did Jesus, was Jesus affirming any of the sin of those people? Not a bit, was he? You read those texts, do you know what the, you know what the Bible tells us? He spoke the truth of those people. He loved the rich young ruler, but knew that something had gripped the rich young ruler's heart, and it was money. And so Jesus knew that he would never have freedom if he wasn't willing to give everything away and come follow Jesus. The woman caught in adultery, he didn't say, well, I'm about to, I'm about to say something to you, and, and I just want you to know I, I love you, and it's okay, but I'm going to say something. He just said, no, you, you don't sin. Don't do this anymore. Don't live this way. Remember the Samaritan woman? Hey, why don't you go get your husband? I don't have a husband. Well, he knew that already. He said, yeah, you're right. You've been married a bunch of times. And the guy that you're living with now, he's not even your husband. So I wanna, I wanna, we've got to get back to this, at least here at LifePoint. We are to love all people, but we don't affirm everything. And we don't have to preface our statements when we take a stand on God's breathed out word. So we stand there. So I just wanted to share with you this morning, this is my heart and mindset when we come in. This is what has guided us for 15 years. 
and I'm leaving this planet one day and I'm going to be with my king. And we must establish here a pathway that maintains our focus for decades to come. Let's pray.